If you knew everything was going to finish, that it was the end of the world as we know it, how would you spend the time you've got left? Uh, I don't mind a good end of the world movie, and there's a few answers the movies give. Uh, Live it up. Party like there's no tomorrow. Do everything you can to avoid the inevitable. Blow up the asteroid. Restart the sun. Whatever it takes, it's worth it. Or maybe it's time to right wrongs, time to be with those you love. If you knew the end was near, how would you spend the time you've got left? Uh, For the last few weeks in 1 Peter, we've been thinking about suffering as a Christian. Uh, The key verse for this whole section is back in chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12 says, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. These verses tell us about our relationship with the world. We're strangers to the world. It tells us what God calls us to do since we are strangers in the world. We're to say no to sinful desires and say yes to good deeds. And it tells us the reality. As followers of Jesus, sometimes we'll be falsely accused simply because we live for Jesus. But also, sometimes God will use our lives to bring people to faith in Jesus. These verses are a summary, a a heading that uh, quite that we're still kind of fleshing out as we continue in 1 Peter. And as we open up chapter 4, it raises for us a new question, but still under that, that heading. How does time impact how we live for Jesus? How does time impact how we live for Jesus? Uh, we see down in verse 7, the time is short, and we're going to consider that more in a moment. But first up, Christians live in a new time. The time for sin has passed and the time we have now we are to use for the will of God. Have a listen to verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. Uh, Just like the calendar is split into two parts, BC, before Christ, AD, it's the year of the Lord, History is defined by that moment, the coming of the Lord Jesus. Our lives are the same. If you've met Jesus, you've had your own BC and AD story. Peter says in BC lives, many look for meaning, satisfaction and and fulfilment in pleasure. And not just pleasure, but excessive pleasure. Hedonism, uh, that was actually harmful. Without a view for eternity, the best we can do is eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. You only live once, time is short, so live it up. 
But knowing Jesus and his suffering changes how we use the time we have. Though that list of things in verse 3, it sounds like God's anti-freedom, anti-fun. But that would be the wrong conclusion to land on. Uh, God is pro-pleasure. I said this a few weeks ago when we were listening to the start of chapter 3. God is pro-beauty. God is pro-pleasure. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. God created us with bodies and brains that experience pleasure. And pleasure not just in a spiritual way, like I think that psalm is mainly, but from the physical world God made. We are to enjoy the good things God's made. To not enjoy them is to turn our backs on a good gift from God. The problem is we abuse God's good gifts. In sin we take something that is good and either we turn it bad or we make it into a God and detestable idolatry. Like when we turn God's good gift of delicious food and wine and turn it into gluttony with no regard for the poor. We take and take, and we don't love our neighbour. Or to drunkenness with no regard that destroys relationships as well as ourselves. Or we take God's good gift of sex in marriage and turn it into lust and adultery. Verse 3 says, that's our BC life, and we should have had enough of that. You know what? Plenty of people who aren't Christians see how empty and meaningless this is. They just don't make that final step. When I was at uni, I lived at a residential college. Uh, Drinking was probably the number one hobby. But there'd be the occasional older student with all the wisdom a 22-year-old can muster, and they'd say as they headed out to the pub again, I'm too old for this. I should know better by now. They knew it, but they didn't, did that? Those... They knew that those things promise joy and satisfaction, but they don't deliver. Christian, do you know this? Are those things part of your BC story? Or are you still caught up claiming Jesus is your Lord, that faith in him is more precious than gold, but you keep looking for joy and satisfaction in these things trapped in sin. If that's your situation, how do we put these things to death? How do we make them the past? Well, partly it's by seeing them for the lies they are. They will not satisfy, and you know that. But the counterintuitive gospel logic is we need to choose suffering. For Christ over satisfying. Uh, it said at the end of verse one, it says, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. And being done with sin doesn't mean perfect. The logic of this whole letter, uh, one Peter is written to Christians suffering grief in all kinds of trials. If suffering as a Christian made you instantly perfect, well, one Peter would be a much shorter letter. So it's not sinless perfection, but God shapes, purifies and refines us through suffering. 
as Juan Sanchez says in his commentary, uh, Peter's point is that Christian suffering is an indication that we have chosen Christ over this world. We've been hearing lots in 1 Peter about suffering as a Christian, being unjustly accused, not for being evil, but for being good, for living for Jesus. And when we stand firm, sticking with Jesus rather than caving in, it shows that we love Jesus more than we love the easy way out. And when we do this, when we live an AD life, living for Jesus instead of wasting our life in meaninglessness, and especially when we do this despite suffering, which I know many of us have, people will see this. And it's going to surprise them. And not only will they scratch their head and go, why would you choose suffering over what looks like at least at short-term pleasure, but not only will they be confused, some will be angry. Verse 4, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. That's a story many of us know. You're a young Christian, it's the first job out of school. There'll be someone at work who makes it their mission to get you trashed at Friday Arvo drinks. Or you're in the tea room at work and, and they're bad, or maybe you've gone out to coffee with some friends and they're bad-mouthing their husband or wife and, and you say nothing. Or you even say something nice about your spouse. They get angry. You might have been there. How do you stand firm with Jesus when people are shocked or even angry? It sounds crazy to swap what feels good for suffering. Why would you do this? Because of the time. Because of eternity. Verse 5, But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. And you're living your AD life and it causes people to be surprised, even mock or abuse. Remember eternity. When you're tempted to go for short-term pleasure that won't satisfy, remember eternity. As Hebrews 9.27 says, people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Stick with Jesus because judgment is real. And God's gift of eternal life is real too. Yes, Christians will face death. Gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, but it's not the end. And that's why Jesus calls us to not simply live for now, getting as much pleasure from life as possible. Instead, we're called to live for something better, eternal life. And this is the reason for what we were told last week, being prepared that we have. After people get over that initial shock, maybe they might even try you on and try and drag you down. They'll ask, why? What's motivating you to choose suffering over pleasure And God uses that, doesn't he, to bring people to new life in Jesus. Have you experienced the BC AD moment? Now, how is your life different? How are you using the time in now? 
In Christ, our personal timeline has changed. But more than that, history's timeline has changed. That's what verse 7 says. The time is short. The end could come at any moment. And how does that change how you live? Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be mind so that you may pray. Uh, some skeptics read verse 7 and think, excellent, we've got it. Proof that the Bible's wrong. Peter got it wrong, didn't he? 2,000 years, Jesus hasn't returned. Another nail in the coffin of Christianity. In fact, they've even got it in their own Bible. That's not what near means in verse 7. It means there is nothing left, nothing left in God's timeline, nothing God's got to do before Jesus returns. Uh, B.C., there were things God had promised would happen before the Messiah. A messenger would come, calling out, prepare the way for the Lord. The suffering servant had to come, be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And Jesus has come. The Messiah has lived, died, crushed for our iniquities, risen from the grave. And in Jesus' resurrection and ascension, history has ended. The end is near. And whenever something big happens in the world, a global pandemic for an example, people say, do you think we're in the last days? My answer is, seven. the end of all things is near. We've been living in the last days from the moment Christ walked out of the tomb and the Holy Spirit was poured out on believers. Now, that's probably not what people mean when they ask the question, but that's what the Bible says. Too many Christians are watching out for seven blood moons or the birth of a red heifer in Jerusalem. The Bible says the end of all things is near. The end might come today. Or in another 2,000 years, regardless, theologically, in God's timetable, the end is near. Scared? What does it mean for us? Should we panic or party? No, verse 7 says we're to be sober-minded and pray. There's no need to panic. The end is near because God is in control. Pray. What should we pray for? Well, if Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead, we should pray for forgiveness. Pray for salvation for us and others that God would pour out his mercy. That's what we should pray for. And we should live knowing that the end is near. Uh, the end is near doesn't mean it's time now for selfishness, for getting the most out of the short life as you can. It's a time for loving and serving. Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. It's tragic when you've seen a relationship that's collapsed where there used to be love, now there's bitterness. Uh, love makes us quick to forgive, generous in overlooking small faults. A few years ago, we did the course Resolving Everyday Conflict. This course dwells deeply on Proverbs 19.11. A person's wisdom yields patience, and it is to one's glory to overlook an offence. It's wise, it is glorious to overlook small slights 
It's loving to cover some sins. Not all. Love also means confronting significant sin, continual or habitual sin. But even then, as we confront, because we know the forgiveness of God, when we lovingly confront someone who's wronged us, we're quick to forgive. It's to one's glory to overlook an offence. If you want to dig into this more, if you did the Resolving Everyday Conflict course, dig out the book, have a look over it again, or um, grab the book The Peacemaker or borrow it from me. Uh, that's uh, The course is based on that book. As our culture leans more heavily on freedoms and rights, I think this is a way Christians are going to stand out. We're not on about rights, but love. And we show our love in serving others. Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have uh, you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. As you read the biographies of Jesus, the Gospels, one of the things you pick up about Peter is he tells it like it is. He gets it out straight away. Verse 9, I love it, isn't it? He's at it again. Hospitality without grumbling. You know that, don't you? You invite someone over for a meal and the whole house is stressed and tense and you start grumbling. Oh, why do they have so many dietary concerns? Why do we need to clean the house again? What's hospitality? It's not throwing a dinner party. It's not my kitchen rules. It's loving others, opening our homes and our lives to others. Uh, For Christians, our home is not our castle. We don't pull up the drawbridge to keep ourselves safe. We open the doors and welcome others in, and we do this to show Christian love. I think we need to have a, a big picture for hospitality. Don't think of just having uh, people around your table, though it does mean that. Move in when they're doing it tough. It's showing hospitality, isn't it? Visit others, especially if they're unwell or in hospital or aged care. When's the last time you did that? And there's also the hospitality we show at church. It's probably the lowest bar, but we need to do it in a Keep an eye out for the new face. Greet them, say hi. But more than that, there's a difference between welcoming and loving, isn't it? We can be a welcoming church. That's great on day one, but actually love is a big step past that, isn't it? It's getting to know them, helping them find their place. Introduce them to others. Invite them to join your Bible study group. Invite them to join you for lunch or to grab a coffee during the week. And as we do this, we're putting into practice the gifts God's given us. Uh, This language of gifts of God's grace in verse 10, sometimes it leads us to being inward looking, asking, well, which gift has God given me? Uh, Sometimes you'll ask someone to serve, maybe to show some hospitality, and they'll say, oh, I can't do that, it's not my gift. Uh, That's not the point. Uh, The idea is, Whatever God puts in front of us to put our hands to, whether it's serving or speaking, 
lean on God's strength. One of the ways we lean on God's strength is we can recruit others to help us to serve others. Look, whenever you speak, whenever you serve, the time is short. The end is near. So don't waste the opportunity that God's put in front of you, but do it all for the glory of the Father through the Son. Doing it all for the glory of the Father through the Son, that is hard, isn't it? Because we're we're so easily self-absorbed. When we serve, we worry if people will notice and thank us. And maybe that's why we grumble with our hospitality, because no one said thank you. Or when we speak, we worry whether people will like us, instead of remembering that the one who matters is God. Doing everything to the praise of God through Jesus, that can be a really fuzzy idea. Kind of we just say the words, we don't know what it means. How do you know if you're really living to the praise of God? I think it's growing in a habit of Godward attentiveness. The discipline of recognising actually we do everything before God. I think it's very easy to go through life functionally an atheist. Ignoring that God is working in everything providentially. That nothing is outside of his cares and plans and making this truth fuel for prayer. To pray and thank God for the way he's working providentially and to ask him to work providentially. Because the time is short and the end is near. So be sober-minded and pray. How does this shape your life? Are you still living BC with no thought of eternity maybe hiding from reality by partying like there's no tomorrow or making family your ultimate joy and satisfaction. Friend, please hear the warning. You will have to give account to God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But Jesus suffered and stands willing to forgive you and give you new life. Will you come to him for mercy? And if you are living AD, if you're trusting in Jesus, your years are now the years of the Lord. Are you living in this truth, standing firm even when that means suffering? Realising the joy and treasure of saying no to short-term abuse of God's good gifts and instead finding true pleasure in God. True pleasure in loving others, serving others and speaking the very words of God. The end is near. We can't blow up an asteroid and stop it. Jesus is out of the grave. He is risen and reigning. We are in the last days. And in this time, Jesus calls us to live for eternity now. Let's pray. Our Father God, we praise you that Jesus changes everything. Thank you that his life, death and resurrection changes history and changes our lives. Please help us become more like Jesus. As we suffer, may you use our suffering to be putting sin to death. Grow us in our love for you and for one another. Help us to be a hospitable church, putting love into action. Help us do all things for your glory. We ask that our lives and words would stand out and that you'd be pleased to use them to bring people to true and eternal life in the Spirit. Amen.